Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Salt to Salt. It's a little bit cooler today. We appreciate the cooler weather. It has been rather hot, hasn't it? So today is the 16th of Kislev. Um, that's the Hebrew date. It's the 29th of November, 16th of Kislev for the year 5784. Today is the anniversary of the 22nd World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in the year 1946. Um, the uh, the, the, remember, this is in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, and Zionist leaders had pretty much lost their patience with the British who were stonewalling about the creation of the Jewish state. Remember the Belfort Declaration, in which, uh, which was uh, 25 years earlier, in which the British promised um, the Jewish people that they would be able to develop, they would be able to have independence in their ancient homeland. Remember, Israel has been the homeland of the Jews for more than 3,000 years. King David declared Jerusalem the capital in the year 1000 before the Common Era. We were there when the first temple was built, the second temple was built, and there had been Jews in Israel for more than 3,500 years without a break, consistently. And uh, and uh, it's always been the great goal of every Jew, even if we find ourselves... Uh, dispersed and exiled in the four corners of the globe to return back to our home. Jews pray facing Israel, facing Yerushalayim, because it is the home of every single Jew. And so after the great horrors of the Holocaust and the unbelievable trauma that the Jewish people went through, the hemorrhaging of the Jewish people with the murder of one third of the Jews in the world. It's absolutely unbelievable um, what happened in Europe um, 75 years ago, so 80 years ago. So the, the, the Jews um, who were then in Israel, which was at the time was called Palestine, that name came from the Romans, who named the Palestine after the Philistines. Philistines were long gone. The Shiva Saumos, the seven nations that the Jews conquered when they went into the land um, under Yoshua, under Joshua, which was in 1300 before the Common Era, so they were uh, had all disappeared. There weren't any left, and the Jews were the only ancient people that still remained in the land. And the Romans, in the year um, 1200, sorry, in the year 300 of the Common Era, um, renamed the area Palestine after the Philistines, just to like you know stick it to the Jews, just to make it you know because the Jews were rebelling, um, and then they exiled the Jews from the land. Although many stayed, but many were forced out by the Romans. But so the Jews have always wished and longed and prayed and had a tremendous aspiration to return back to our holy land. And so it looked like in after World War One, when the British were, received the mandate of the control of that area um, uh, by the Allies who were victorious in World War One, and one of the enemies was the Ottoman Empire who had been in control of that area. For There was no independent Palestinian state. There's never been an independent Palestinian state. The area was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And it was one of the colonies that the Ottoman Empire had conquered, had um, 
had occupied. And the British then took it over and made a promise through the Belfort Declaration that the Jewish people would have an independent homeland. A few years later, they actually cut up their mandate and two-thirds of it they gave to the Arabs in the form of the Kingdom of Jordan. They created the Kingdom of Jordan and then they left one-third, which would have supposed to be for the Jews. Um, but when, after the, the terrible horrors of the Holocaust, and the, the British didn't allow the Jews to come back to the Holy Land. Imagine we would have had a state of Israel um, during the Holocaust. So the Jews would have been able to come to Israel. They would have been deported by the Nazis. The Nazis' original plan was not to to exterminate all the Jews. It was to deport the Jews, to make Europe Judenrein. The Third Reich wouldn't have any Jews in it. But then they could have deported them all to Israel. But the British wouldn't allow them in. The British only allowed 30,000 immigrants a year um, in their white paper. So you know, as a result, the, the Jews of Europe were murdered by the Nazis, were exterminated. Um, so after the Holocaust, the Zionist leaders saw the urgency and realized that there was just no choice, that the Jews desperately needed to return to the homeland in order that future Holocausts wouldn't take place. And they therefore decided on this day in the year 1946 at the 22nd Zionist Congress that they would forcibly resist British policy and the Jewish underground movements would redouble their efforts in order to um, pressurize the British, in order to force the British out of Eretz Israel. And so they, they, there were already significant activities, but they were increased considerably after that decision was made. And uh, they began to damage British installations such as railway lines, police stations, army bases. In one night in 1946, the Haganah, under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, blew up 12 critical bridges. We know that the Irgun, or also known as the Lehi, Loichme, Cheirus Israel, under the um, powerful leadership of Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin was a, um, a, uh, he was a lawyer living in Warsaw, and he was then conscripted into, he was a, an officer in the Polish army. He was arrested by the Russians when the Russians um, t- took over half of Poland in their agreement with the Germans, and he was exiled to Siberia. When the Germans attacked the Russians in 1941, so the British ensured that the Polish um, army that was exiled by Stalin would actually join the fight and would be a part of the um, conflict and, and the fight against the Nazis. And so as part of that, the, the uh, Polish officers, the Polish army that was exiled to Siberia were released by the Russians and were sent to be involved in, in fighting. And Menachem Begin is, escaped and he went to Palestine. He arrived in Eretz Israel and soon after he arrived, David Raziel, who was the head of the Irgun, was killed in battle um, in Syria and uh, fighting for the British, actually. And then uh, Begin took over the Haganah, uh, sorry, the Irgun, and they were even more aggressive than the Haganah, and they uh, were very active in their attacks on the British installations, on the British um, for, uh, points of power in Palestine. And their efforts were largely successful, because by 1947, the British saw that it was untenable. They couldn't remain in 
um, Palestine. They, the, the truth is they couldn't afford it. They realized they needed 100,000 soldiers in order to keep the peace and in order to ensure there, w- there would be law and order because there was a civil war between the Jews and the Arabs. And uh, so they couldn't afford it anymore. They were millions of dollars in debt after World War II that they owed the Americans. And so they decided to hand the problem over to the United Nations. And they said, whatever the United Nations decides, so we will do. Um, which eventually it led to the partition plan, which was actually decided, voted by the United Nations on this day, exactly 76 years ago, on the 29th of November, 1947. It's actually the Hebrew date is tomorrow, the 17th of Kislev, which we'll discuss in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. It's amazing how all these dates coincide. So today the 16th of Kislev is the anniversary of a decision at the 22nd Zionist Congress to pressurize the British by all means in order to force them out of Palestine so they would deliver on their promise of the Balfour Declaration and and the Jews having their independent homeland returned to them um, after many centuries. So today the English state is actually the anniversary of the vote by the United Nations to partition Palestine. Um, The Hebrew anniversary is tomorrow, which is the 17th of Kislev. So today, according to our Hebrew day, 29th of November, 76 years ago, the momentous vote took place in Flushing Meadows, New York, for the partition of Palestine. And there was a tremendous amount of conflict up until that point. Um, The British were not able to handle the chaos that was taking place in Palestine as a result of the pressure from both the Jews and the Arabs to find a resolution. Um, And uh, there was many different things happened in order to bring it to this point. But finally, the, the, there was a commission that was called UNSCAP, which was set up by the United Nations in order to recommend the way forward in Palestine. And as mentioned, the British said that they would follow the suggestions, the recommendations of the UN because they couldn't afford it anymore. They were bankrupt after World War II. And they, uh, Ernest Bevan, who was the British foreign minister, actually um, said that you know, let the United Nations decide what to do. And the most suitable solution would be for the British to remain and to keep the peace. And then the UN, the United States, would fund that. And we would still be able to hold on to the vestige of the empire. They didn't want to give up Palestine. And it would be funded by the United Nations and by the United States. So that was the British plan. They didn't really want to leave. Um, but UNSCAP recommended after much research that the land should be divided into two sections. There should be a Jewish section. There should be an Arab section. And um, it was put to, to the vote. The Zionist movement put in a tremendous amount of effort in order to ensure that they would get the necessary two-third votes in order to pass partition. Bevan, again, was confident that that wouldn't be. He said that never has it happened in history and never will it happen that the Eastern Soviet bloc would vote on the same side of a resolution as the United States and the Western countries. So he was confident and certain that that would be impossible for the two-thirds majority to be achieved. Um, And But miraculously, really it is miraculous, 
that the votes took place and there was a two-thirds majority. Um, the Zionist movement put in a tremendous amount of effort to get as many votes as possible, and they lobbied all of the small countries as well as the large countries. Um, and, of course, the the pivotal votes came from the United States and Soviet Union. Remember, this is the beginning of the Cold War, and um, the uh, United States and, and the Soviet Union are enemies, and um, they each had their own cheshboinas, they each had their own um, reason why they would support it. And the United States, um, the State Department of the United States was anti-Semitic and didn't want to support partition. Um, they, the Secretary of State was the famous General George Marshall who led the United States to victory in World War II. And uh, he was against partition. He told uh, President Truman that if President Truman would vote in favor of partition, so he would run against him in the next elections. President Truman being the what he called himself a stubborn Missouri farmer said to George Marshall that George um, you do what you need to do and I'll do what I need to do but remember I am the present uh, president of the United States um, uh, Truman was convinced by the Zionist movement that it was so hot and there was so much political jockeying that Truman said he doesn't want to talk to anybody about it anymore. He needs a bit of clarity and space to make up his mind. And uh, the Zionists were trying to get to him and trying to convince him, but he wouldn't meet any of them. And there's the famous story of Eddie Jacobson, who was Truman's um, friend. They had a business together. They were partners in the haberdashery business. And um, the Zionist movement knew the only way to get to Truman would be through through uh, Eddie Jacobson. So they went to Eddie and they told him what they requested of him to arrange a meeting with uh, Chaim Weizmann, who was the elder statesman of the Zionist movement, and President Truman. And he makes the meeting. He flies in from Missouri at his own cost, by the way. He paid for his ticket. And uh, he goes into the Oval Office and the president said, how are you doing, my friend? What's going on? And he said, I have one request of you. Please will you meet with Mr. Weizmann and apparently uh, Truman writes in his autobiography that he was very angry and he said they've got to you and these are underhand tactics and uh, I told them I don't want to meet anybody further but he said Eddie how could I say no to you I'm going to do it for you my friend and so he met with Weizmann it was supposed to be a 15 minute meeting turns into an hour and a half meeting Truman is very impressed with Weizmann and with the cause of the Jewish people and with the case of the Jewish people and he said to Weizmann there and then, he said, I will vote for partition and I will be the first country to recognize the state of Israel. Um, and so it's not just the United States, but many of the Western democracies usually follow the lead of the United States. And so the United States were in and the Soviets were in. That's unbelievable. Why would the Soviets vote in favor? We see, you know, the last 50 years, how anti-Israel the Soviets have been and how anti-Israel the, Israel they are today how Putin is in an axis of evil with China, with Iran, undermining Israel and supporting our enemies. So how could it be back then? The Soviets thought that they, they knew there was a many of the Jews in Israel were socialists, were communists that come from Russia, and they believed in the Soviet dream of um, communist uh, countries, of, of having a socialist country. Um, the great 
communist dream of Marx, which as we've seen is an abject failure. There's not one example where it's worked in the world. It's only resulted in misery and in dictatorships and in cruelty and in the suffering of millions of people without exception. It's been tried with every single culture across the globe. There's no, you know, there's almost no country, no area, no region that hasn't tried communism and there's no exception to the rule. There's not a single exception to the rule. Every single one has been an abject failure resulting in the suffering of millions of people. Um, I, I just, uh, it's mind-boggling that there's still people today that want to introduce socialism into the world. Uh, they think it's going to, that great socialist dream of a utopian society of freedom and equality. How could it possibly be that, uh, that it could work anywhere? It's never worked anywhere. It's been tried for the last hundred years. Um, anyway, it just baffles the mind that people, you know, don't confuse me with the facts and they still, still keep going. Um, which, uh, please God, they will not be successful because we don't want humanity to suffer. We want humanity to thrive and to be prosperous and to live good lives of freedom and democracy. Anyway, the Soviets thought that they would be able to subvert Israel from within, that there was a large communist party in Israel, they would get a few seats in the elections, and then they would have a coup. And they would take it, that's what they did in Czechoslovakia, they thought they would do the same in Israel. So that's why the Soviets supported it as well. And the Soviets weren't alone. The Eastern European bloc was five countries, it included Poland and Ukraine and Belarusia, Czechoslovakia. So the Soviets are in, the United States are in, and the vote takes place on this day, 76 years ago. And the incredibly, the results were 33 countries voted in favor which was a 72% majority in favor, which was absolutely unbelievable. There were uh, 13 countries from Latin America, eight countries from Western Europe, five of the Eastern Bloc, as I mentioned, two African countries voted in favor, Liberia and, yes, South Africa voted in favor of partition under Smuts just before he was voted out of power. Um, Asia Pacific had Australia, Zealand, Philippines, and, of course, North America had Canada and United States. 13 countries voted against partition, which was 11 uh, Muslim countries, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, India, Lebanon, um, Syria, Pakistan, Yemen, Iran, Turkey, Egypt. Those were the seven uh, Muslim countries that voted against, and Greece and Cuba also voted against, and there were 10 abstentions. So this unbelievable dream of the Jewish people returning to our ancient homeland was fulfilled, and uh, partition was voted, was voted for partition. Now, remember, partition um, means a two-state solution. It means there would be a Jewish state and there would be an Arab state. The area would be split into um, into two parts. The, the Jewish area was split into three non-contiguous plots with no consideration of security. So the Jews would have the eastern part of the Galil, the coastal plain from Haifa down to Tel Aviv and uh, and uh, the majority being uncultivated like the Negev desert as well down, and down to the Negev. So that was the Jewish areas. The other half of the land was to form the new Arab state and Jerusalem and its 100,000 Jews would be completely surrounded on all four sides by the Arab state and administered administered as an international zone. Despite these unfavorable terms, the Jewish agency immediately accepted the partition plan 
and the Arabs immediately rejected. So remember, it's a two-state solution. It's not that there would only be a Jewish state. It's that the Jews would have a section and the unfavorable section, the uncultivated uncultivatable section was given to the Jews and the rest was given to the Arabs. The Jews accepted it. Menachem Begin accepted it. Um, uh, Ben-Gurion accepted it. The first chief rabbi, Rabbi Herzog, said, we will take what they give us and we will build from there. Um, the Jews took it and the Arabs immediately rejected the partition plan and um, they straight away declared war. Fighting began immediately. It's not fighting didn't only begin in, in May of 1948 when the state of Israel was declared by Ben Gurion, but rather the fighting began on the 29th of November 1947, and we had seven well-equipped, well-trained Arab armies that um, attacked Israel, uh, troops from Lebanon, from Syria, from Iraq, from Egypt, from Jordan, from Saudi Arabia, and from Yemen all joined the fighting and to try to destroy this fledgling state, this fetus. It's a, the newborn state of Israel had no army, it had no government, it had no supplies, it had no infrastructure. It was completely um, vulnerable and unprepared for a, a war against seven countries. But the, And that was the War of Independence in 1948, um, which through the unbelievable bravery of those 600,000 Jews that were in the, the land at the time against these Arab armies and miraculously, incredibly, they were successful in defending themselves. It was a war of self-defense. It was not a colonialist war. That is false. That's a lie. Israel is not a, a colonizing country. Israel is returning to the ancient homeland of the Jewish people. Israel is not a Muslim country. Israel was for some time controlled by the Ottoman Empire, but it wasn't an independent Muslim state. But there have always been Jews, and it is our ancient homeland for more than 3,000 years. And Israel now was facing annihilation in 1948 and defended herself with unbelievable bravery and commitment. Men, women, and children were thrown into the fray to try and defend themselves against these foraging, attacking armies, colonialist armies that were attacking them, and uh, incredibly succeeded and managed to push them back and to maintain their state. So the Arabs rejected the two-state solution, and the Jews accepted it, and were now found themselves being attacked from all sides and having to defend themselves. And I think it's very important today to remember, to be aware of the reality in Israel. There are so many lies. There's so much misinformation. And I think most people in the world are ignorant. They receive the information from the press, which is very anti-Israel and very biased against the Jewish people. And, uh, they, and, and so most of the information that most of the population in the world receive is very, uh, one-sided and skewed against Israel and against the Jewish people. And usually it's false. It's based on false premises and not on the facts and on what actually happened historically. So, you know, people say that they support a two-state solution. Why is there not a two-state solution? Israel is at fault for denying a two-state solution. That is a complete lie. Israel has always wanted a two-state solution. The first one was recommended by the United Nations on this day in 1947, which Israel accepted. And we're prepared to to live with and to move forward and to make peace and to live 
um, in harmony with their neighbors. That's the Arabs that rejected the two-state solution in 1948, and they've continued to do so. There have been another four clear examples where Israel has been prepared to make um, major concessions in order to have a two-state solution. Only The only thing they're asking in return is that the Arabs, the Palestinians, which were, you know, that, that's what uh, Yasser Arafat coined the name Palestinians. Before then it was Israel's, Israelis versus the Arabs. The Arabs versus the Jews in the area. It was only in 1964 when Arafat established the PLO, when, by the way, Gaza was controlled by Egypt and the West Bank, Yehuda v'Shamrom, were controlled by um, by Jordan, and the Arafat said, then co- coined the term Palestinians, they have rejected the two-state solution. They did so in 1947, and then again in 1993 with the Oslo Accords, they uh, were offered a step-by-step process in which they would have independence, and there would be a two-state solution on condition that they would put down their arms and live in peace with Israel. They rejected that in 1998. Again, attempts were made with negotiations with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, again rejected in 2000, Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered Yasser Arafat 91% of the uh, land that they wanted in the West Bank. And Arafat, in his own words, said, we turned the tables of negotiations over and we went out to war. That's the first intifada. So that's the fourth time. So the first time is 1947, on this day. The second time they were offered peace and a two-state solution, 1993, rejected. The second time, the third time offered a two-state solution in return for peace, 1998, rejected. The fourth time the, the Palestinians are offered, are offered their two-state solution, a complete independence from Israel, as long as they put down their arms and live in peace, in 2000 with Barak, where Barak again rejected by Arafat, and there's a fifth time, believe it or not. The fifth time is in 2008. Remember, 2005, Israel unilaterally gives back Gaza to the Palestinians without any of the 10,000 Jews that are living in Gaza leave in, 19, in 2005. 2007, Hamas is voted in. Gaza, there's no Jews in Israel. There's no occupation in Gaza, right? End the occupation. There's, there hasn't been occupation in Gaza since 2005. Immediately when Hamas comes to power, they uh, take full control, no more elections, a dictatorship in which they exert their domination over the Palestinian people, all of the international aid, the most amount of international aid per capita in the history of the world has been given to Gaza, more than the Marshall Plan of World War II per capita. And all of those billions of dollars are not funneled to building the society and uplifting the plight of the Palestinian people, but rather to rockets and to tunnels and to missiles and to war. They completely focused, as Hamas openly say, we are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. It's not about building up the Palestinian people and the Palestinian territories. It's about destroying Israel. That is our single focus. That is our aspiration. And we will put all of our efforts, they say so in their charter, all of the effort should be put into destroying the Jews murdering the Jews, open genocide, which is as we see what happened in October 7. So, and again in 2008, Olmet offered Mahmoud Abbas 97% of the territories that they are wanting, and just in return for peace, again Abbas doesn't accept peace, no counter offer at all, 
goes to the second intifada and war. So five times the Arabs have been offered a two-state solution. Every single time they have rejected, not because of Israel. Israel was willingly accepting those terms and making concessions, and the Arabs haven't. So we see it's important to understand that history. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So in conclusion, we've been remembering historically that today, 36 years ago, the vote was made by the UN to partition Palestine, create a Jewish state and an Arab state, um, and the Jews accepted that offer, and there was a declaration of the State of Israel. Unfortunately, the Arabs did not accept that offer. As they say, the Arab leaders never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity for progress um, and, uh, and for peace, and unfortunately, that's the case. And five times they've been offered the two-state solution. Every time it's been rejected. And so the situation of war that we find ourselves in is not the fault of Israel, contrary to what you see in the media and to these false accusations of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Those are complete lies. Those are anti-Semitic accusations against the Jewish people, which are completely false. uh, Israel wants to make peace. Israel will at any stage make peace. And it really is captured in the statement, if uh, the Jews put down their arms, they will be murdered, there will be a genocide. If the Arabs put down their arms, there will be peace. And that's the situation today. Don't be fooled and don't be uh, let your mind be perverted and twisted. And, you know, people say it's very complicated and the Middle East is something that, you know, is, is, it's not a simple thing. It's very simple. That's how simple it is. Uh, Israel wants peace. Israel's prepared to live with her neighbors in peace, Israel prepared to make concessions to achieve that peace, as they did with Egypt um, in uh, uh, off in 1978 with the Sinai with the Sinai Accords, the Camp David Accords between uh, Begin and and Sadat, and that peace still holds, and Israel will do so going forward. It's not Israel that is the obstacle to peace over here. It is the Arabs. It is Hamas. Hamas want to destroy Israel. They won't stop until they destroy Israel. And therefore, Israel has no choice. What do you want Israel to do? To say, okay, fine, come and destroy us. The massacres of, of October 7th should be spread to the rest of Israel. Are you crazy? Are you, are you going to commit suicide? They can't commit suicide. Israel is there. And we have, thank God, 8 million Jews in Israel. And Kenya Ruach should continue to develop and thrive. And we have every right to defend ourselves in our ancient homeland. We are not the colonialists. We are the indigenous people of the land of Israel. And we therefore have every right to, to defend ourselves. And we have every right to fight against Hamas. We have a duty and responsibility to destroy Hamas. Because if Israel does not destroy Hamas, they face an existential threat to their existence in, in Israel. Because then our enemies see that we are weak. And the only language that is understood in the Middle East is a language of strength. If you show weakness, you will be wiped out. If Israel... Have been, has been provoked in the most severe way. The atrocities of October 7th are unthinkable, are just unspeakable. That 47 minute video, which I'm glad I haven't seen, which the Israeli government is showing, um, the press and diplomats around the world. Elon Musk has just been there and he's just seen that video. He said it was just, 
you know, he, he couldn't watch it. It's, it's just the atrocities are so are so bad, and the the violence and the the uh, unbelievable behavior of Hamas is just un, unspeakable. What they did, and they will continue to do it. They won't stop until they have killed every Jew. So Israel must wipe out Hamas after such a provocation. If they don't. So the enemies see that they are weak and they will attack us. Iran will attack us. Hezbollah will attack us and they will try and destroy us. So Israel is fighting for her life and has to be bold and strong and does so with tremendous compassion. And, and, you know, the, the moral equivalence that we hear in the press is sickening, is, is disgusting, is lies, is, is completely false that, uh, Hamas are terrorists and, uh, and the IDF are terrorists, terrorists. That is a false anti-Semitic statement. It's a complete lie. It's inflammatory to make such an accusation. And that's what you see in, on SABC. That's what you see in the modern media today. It's completely false. Hamas are terrorists and they target civilians. Israel and the IDF are soldiers that are targeting the terrorists. They're fighting a war against the Hamas terrorists and Israel does so much to avoid civilian casualties. Hamas deliberately hide behind civilians. There's no moral equivalent of being a, an army that's fighting your enemy and trying to, um, to going to great effort to avoid civilian casualties and, and the collateral that unfortunately happens in war uh, compared to Hamas that targets civilians and hides behind civilians. Hiding behind civilians, hiding in hospitals, making your headquarters underneath the hospital, which we've all seen the the clear evidence that at, at, at Al Shifra Hospital, that's where the headquarters of Hamas are. That's where a massive network of tunnels is. That's where they took some of the hostages. So that that is a war crime. Israel is not committing war crimes. Hamas is committing war crimes over and over again. Why are we not hearing in the world press about the release of our hostages? And putting pressure on Hamas to release our hostages. And they committed that crime against humanity. So we see the unbelievable anti-Semitism in the press. But don't be fooled. Realize that Israel is just. And Israel is on the side of good. And they are fighting against a tremendous evil in Hamas. And uh, people that are terrorists, that target civilians, that hide behind civilians. And that must be eradicated. For the future of the Jewish people in the land of Israel... They need to destroy Hamas. They obviously need to avoid civilian casualties as much as they can, but they have no choice but to to destroy Hamas. And they they very reluctantly had to stop their military campaign in order. The only reason why Hamas is giving back some of the hostages that they kidnapped is because they're being completely destroyed on the ground. Um, and this just gives them a chance to breathe and to regroup. So militarily, it's not a good move. But what can Israel do? Well, you know, they have forced into having to make these decisions. And we, we want to get our people back, our innocent civilians, children and women that are have been taken captive by these monsters. We, we have no choice but to stop the campaign and try and get as many back as possible. And then the campaign must resume and they must destroy and obliterate Hamas and find some solution for the people, the Palestinian people in Gaza. And uh, the Palestinian people are religious people. They also believe in the jihad. They voted in Hamas in a landslide. And they, you know, we hope that we will be able to re-educate a new generation that's not filled with hate and with jihad and with wiping out every Jew and genocide of the Jews. So we pray for a 
peaceful future in the Middle East. But if that's not the case, there's nothing Israel can do but to defend herself with strength. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's conclude with a very powerful idea from the great Nahari Sfasimus. Sfasimus was the rabbi of the Gera Hasidim, um, a person of tremendous genius and insight. And he explains that on the Torah reading this week, Pashas Vayishlach, we see that Yaakov is having this encounter with his brother Esav, his estranged brother Esav. He does much to prepare for that encounter, and he does three things in order to mitigate the the potential aggression of Esav. He sends him gifts. He tries with diplomacy to reach a, a peaceful resolution. He um, prays to Hashem, and thirdly, he prepares for war. And that really is a prototype of dealing with our enemies as we try to find a, a diplomatic solution as Israel constantly tries to do. Um, we pray to Hashem for our protection and for peace and for the, uh, and for there not to be a loss of life on both sides, on, on both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, the Arab side. Nobody wants death. We don't want death. They want death. The, the jihadists want death. They believe in death. They, they value death more than, more than life. We want life. Um, but if that doesn't work, we have to prepare ourselves for war. We have to face the reality. None of us, we reluctantly face that reality, but the mindset is different to our mindset. And if there's no choice, we have to be prepared to go to war as we have no choice with Hamas to do so. Um, and so Yaakov prepares in this way and he, uh, it says that he went back for Pachim Katanim. He moved, he split his camp into two. He went back to get some of his items. He then has a clash with the spiritual force. And uh, our sages tell us that's the Syrashil Asaf. The spiritual, every every people in the world has a spiritual force that represents them and that um, gives them their energy to exist. And so the Syrashil Asaf is actually the Yetzirah, our sages teach us. And, and Yaakov has this dramatic fight with this malach, with this angel, this spiritual force, which is the Yetzirah that represents, which is the, the force that represents um, Esav. And so the Pasuk says, Yaakov is standing alone, and he clashes, he struggles with this force, with the spiritual power, the Yetzirah, the Sar of Esav. And Rashi tells us that this Lashon of Yavik means it's like two people struggling and there's dust. You know, when there's a fight, there's a struggle. The, the, the movement of that battle causes dust to rise. And the Gemara and Chulin says that that dust went right up until the Kisei are covered. The Swasemis says we see from this a brilliant thing, amazing thing. We see from this that the struggle with Asa, the struggle with the Yetzirah, keeps going at Kisar which means that we might defeat the Yetzirah on one level, but then we climb another rung of the ladder, and then we're going to have the struggle again. And it keeps going all the way up until the Kisar That's how the struggle is, and that's life. Life is as we develop and grow and progress to the next level, spiritually speaking, overcome certain aspects of the Yetzirah, certain parts of our being, of our lower being, 
and we go beyond that and progress. Most of us don't even know that there's a struggle going on and therefore we don't progress to the next level. We remain on a very low level. It's very easy for the HR to tempt us and to seduce us and to divert us from living a life of spirituality and of morality and of serving God. But as we progress up that ladder, the Sulam of Yaakov, it goes all the way to Kisar Kabod, so the Yetzirah comes with us. And the struggles continue. And that's life. Life is a constant battle against the Yetzirah all the way up until the Kisar Kabod. The role of Kalah the role of a Jew, is to overcome that Yetzirah and to strive to connect to purity, to godliness, to morality, to be an example in the world of how to live in a moral way and to achieve our potential by defeating the Yetzirah. So please God, we should be able to do that. And please God, our efforts for peace in the world should be successful. And we should see a world in which we all live in peace and mutual respect, serving the creator of the universe in harmony and in love. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.